All right. Welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. This is not therapy. This is real life. And I am Anna Lindbergh-Cedar. I'm your host. And I'm very happy to welcome on the podcast today a New York Times bestselling author, Lori Gottlieb, who has a new book out called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. And she is absolutely the perfect guest for this podcast because, as listeners know, we Our aim is to translate therapy concepts into everyday self-care tips and tricks that you can use anywhere, anytime. So, um, you know, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Lori Gottlieb, just reading the book jacket. She is a psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author who writes the weekly Dear Therapist advice column for The Atlantic where she's also a contributing editor. She has written for the New York Times Magazine and has appeared on Today, Good Morning America, CBS This Morning, CNN, and NPR. She lives in Los Angeles. So, Lori, I would love it if, as a way of introducing yourself, you would tell us a little bit about the book that just came out. I finished reading it. I have my own thoughts about it, but I would love to hear just... You know, you've had a chance to describe it to readers, and you've also heard readers giving you feedback. How would you describe this new book that just came out? The book is my way of bringing people into the therapy room. So I follow four different patients, mainly. I weave other stories into the book. And then there's a fifth patient, and that fifth patient is me. And so it's me as a clinician working with four very different people who are going through their own struggles, and then me with my own therapist working through a struggle that comes up in my own life. Yeah. Yeah. That's You kind of buried the lead on that one a little bit. Do you want to say anything more about the struggle that you went through, that kind of where readers um, find you on that first page and, you know, where you walk through that story? Yeah. Um, so I end up going to therapy because of a breakup. Um, the person that, um, I was planning to marry and who was planning to marry me, um, tells me that he has decided that he doesn't want to live with a kid under his roof for the next 10 years. That kid happens to be my eight year old. Mm -hmm. Um, my eight-year-old had not been hiding in a closet during our relationship. Um, and so my version of the story, and I very purposely say here, my version of the story is that, um, that, you know, my boyfriend is a sociopath. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm using hyperbole, but, um, this but is the before picture, right? This is the before We're picture, right. Before and after there's a story going on here. And maybe that story even served you very well at the time. Exactly. And I think that that's what I talk about at the beginning of the book is that the presenting problem is often a red herring or at least a distorted version of a story. And, uh, you know, and I think a lot of people come to therapy because they want you to, validate that that version of the story Mm -hmm. so I go to therapy thinking that the therapist will say you're right you dodged a bullet the boyfriend you know was you're you're so lucky you didn't end up with this person where did you get that service I want to go to that person that sounds so lovely well you get that from your friends (laughs) right so that's and I talk in the book about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion and idiot Mm -hmm. compassion is what what you'll get from your friends which is the Oh my God, he's he's awful. He's trash. You know, you're so lucky that you're not with him. 
And that feels really good in the short term and in the moment, but it doesn't serve you in the long term. And what, you know, what we do in therapy, of course, is we hold up a mirror to our clients Mm -hmm. and we help them to see something about themselves Mm -hmm. that they're not already seeing. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what my therapist does is that he's not, he's not, uh, you know, corroborating my, my story. He's not, he's not disputing it. He's simply saying, I think that that's part of the story. And I think that there's more. And that's the whole thing, I think, about storytelling is that you have a point of view, right? And what someone else, whether they're a friend or a therapist, gives you is a little bit of perspective on the situation. And, hey, from my angle over here, and maybe a therapist does this, they even mix in studies show that people who go through breakups tend to experience distorted views of uh, trust in relationships, their self others, the world more generally, that's the perspective that another person offers. So for you, that resulted in a seismic story shift about what happened in that relationship. Right, it did. And and it's interesting because even though the, the book starts off with the breakup, the book really isn't about that at all. So if you if you follow in the book, we end up dealing with the underlying issue that got me there in the first place. And it happens very quickly in the first session, even though I'm very resistant to it, Mm -hmm. which is that I I'm talking about the boyfriend and I'm saying, and now I've wasted all these years of my life and I'm in my forties and half my life is over. Mm -hmm. And my therapist gloms on to that snippet. Half my life is over. Mm -hmm. And he says to me, I think that you're grieving, not just the loss of this relationship, but I also think you're grieving something bigger. And I'm thinking, well, what are you smoking? I came here, you know, in the aftermath of this shocking revelation. That's not the sociopath story I came in with. That right. You're supposed to validate. That's not what. That's, that's not, not the what script. I was for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and but he's right. And and I think when when people come in, I like to say that I'm listening not just for not just to the lyrics, not just to the story they're telling, but to the music under the lyrics. So what is the underlying pattern or struggle that this person? that got them into this situation in the first place. And that's what my therapist was listening for. And that's what the book ends up being about, not so much the breakup, but about, um, you know, this whole grieving something bigger, grieving this half my life is over issue. And what, what, is, what am I experiencing at this turning point in my life? Mm-hmm. Well, that reminds me of, you know, I, you know, mentioned off, offline just what a pleasure it was for me personally to read this book as soon as I opened it up I said oh my gosh this was written for me why you know this is this book needed to be written and I mean that in a few different ways I can think of you know this book would be great for new therapists who want a teaser of what it is like to have a, a private practice as one of the you know, career options that you have I feel like I could hand this book to any of my clients who is tempted to ask me personal questions and I might even be tempted to answer some of their personal questions just for funsies, right? Maybe I like the same TV show that they like. And I thought this was just such a beautiful non-judgmental portrayal of the thought process, the intentionality that goes into the therapy process and the fact that it's a real relationship. And I feel like it is a well-written PSA for what therapy is actually like 
and I thought you represented the community of therapists really well as you did that because I noticed you didn't kind of put a badge of honor and say I'm a this kind of therapist or a that kind of therapist. We know culturally within the therapy community, sometimes there are turf wars of us versus them and this and that. And I thought you beautifully um, explained the therapy process in um, pretty universal and personal terms. So So given the fact that your book is such a lovely introduction to the therapy process and a little bit of even the insider baseball behind the scenes details of why therapists do what they do. So I'm curious to hear from you after the book tour and hearing some reactions to the book and what people have kind of hung on to, what do you wish people knew about the therapy process before going in or even thinking about, oh, is this something I should try? I think for a lot of people, they don't necessarily get help or they don't consider therapy because they don't know what it is or they have misconceptions mm -hmm. about what it is. Mm -hmm. And what I really wanted to do in the book was to demystify what it is and to show that therapy is this rich human relationship, this rich human experience. Mm -hmm. um, we aren't the wizards, you know, with all the tricks, um, but we also do have tools and techniques that we're using and I think it's important for people to see why we do what we do, what we're thinking and feeling and how we're trying to help them. Um, and I think to just make it less mysterious. Mm -hmm. So I think that in terms of the patients and I think in terms of, of therapists, I think it's interesting because we work alone in a room and yes, we have case consultation and yes, we get continuing education, but um we don't get to actually see in vivo how other therapists work very much. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's really interesting to, to realize that, you know, we all have similar thoughts and feelings about our patients. We sometimes make mistakes. We sometimes do things that we're proud of. Um, you know, we, we find creative ways to work with our patients. And so I think it's interesting for therapists to see how other therapists work and to feel part of that community mm -hmm. in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think for people who just maybe are not in therapy or maybe not necessarily thinking about therapy, um, just to, to see how other people get through their struggles, because we, these stories might look very different. The people in, in the book might look very different from an individual reader, but I think that we can see aspects of ourselves in every single one of these stories. And sometimes we can see ourselves more clearly through the lens of somebody else's story. Like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, I do that too. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to somebody telling you, you do that. Right. I think not as much learning in that, right? Because the human, you know, cartoonish reaction to that is plug your fingers in your ears and say, la, 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 I can't hear you. It's not me. It's you. And there's not a lot of learning in that. And that's what I love about the book. And as soon as I read it, I thought, oh, someone needed to write this book because Lori's saying things I can't say in session and there needs to be a place for it. And unfortunately, there's a lot of structural barriers that are in place that keep people from having these conversations. Some of them are emotional barriers like shame and stigma. You know, I've worked in counseling centers that were um, international and we saw folks from a hundred different countries around the world and, you know, almost 
someone from every culture pulled me aside and said, you know what, in my culture, we don't talk about that. And so that was almost universal, the fact that we learn to discount our emotions, right? We do. We do. Um, and in fact, it's interesting because I think so many people um, feel alone in whatever they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. So especially, I would say, there's a, there's a gender difference that I noticed too, which is that men will come in and say, you know, I've never told anybody this before. Mm -hmm. And then what they tell me feels so mild to me, you know, and it's this, this huge source of shame for them, this huge secret. They feel so vulnerable mm -hmm. um, because there's so little room for that kind of exchange among mm -hmm. men. Mm -hmm. and, and women will come in and say, you know, I've never told anybody this before, mm -hmm. except for my mother, my sister and my best friend. Mm -hmm. Right. So they've told maybe a couple of people who are very close to them. And what they say tends to be a little bit deeper in terms of, you know, where the, the shame lies. But still, it's interesting because I will bet that if they were to tell other people, those people would say, me too, or yeah. I, I've been through that, or I understand that even if I haven't experienced mm -hmm. that. I mean, you say me too. I think that's what we learned from the hash, you know, the whole hashtag me too movement is it just brought to surface, oh, this already exists. This is already going on. And I want to just in that confidentiality conversation and, and, you know, the structural barriers that are in place, we're talking HIPAA compliance, we're talking about um, protections that are designed to keep our clients safe. So we're bound by law, you know, not to talk about those details outside of the therapy context. And just to show the wide ranging audience that therapists are working with, you know, I have certain mandates that I go over in every single one of my first appointments. Sometimes people think it's kind of the boring details, it's the logistics. Um, and I explained that I'm a mandated reporter and what that means. And I had a, a, a couple of clients, I don't think they would mind me sharing this, saying, you know what, I almost feel like every time I hear those rules, it kind of stigmatizes the process for me. And I wish I, wish I didn't have to be reminded of that. And you know what my preference would be, would be that everyone knows I go to therapy. And I just thought that was such a cool pushback of, you know, looking at, okay, Sometimes it's not black and white and those protections are in place because on, you know, we agreed on those rules and we have consent to that. And then just to notice some folks are also leading the way of, hey, loud and proud, this is what going to therapy looks like. So as a therapist, you even talk about this in the process yourself, what it was like to look for a therapist as a therapist. I've gone through that myself and thought, you know, should I do conflict? you know, online so I can look for someone out of my area and get that specialty and all of that. And here's my question for you. You know, on the podcast, we talk about translating therapy concepts into everyday self-care. I'm going to put you on the spot as an author in TMI culture. People are trying to figure out what their very own boundaries are. For some folks, this is tied up in business, right? How many followers you have online is, it's a financial reality. And so there's an incentive to share more of yourself. And in therapy, we teach people how to protect themselves and keep them safe. And there's this skill called containment, right? So if you're going to cry in your office, you do it for five minutes, and then you go back to the things that are important to you. And, and I noticed that you, you know, I think I noticed you gently doing this in the book, you know, you mentioned an eight-year-old son, but you didn't say what was his favorite dinosaur. You didn't tell his story on his behalf. I noticed you holding kind of 
you know, you were telling a certain story with this book. So I, I'm wondering if there's a lesson that could be told to other authors out there or anyone crafting their self-image on social media. You know, what thought process did you go through as a therapist kind of breaking that that blank slate image of, you know, what a therapist traditionally is and then sharing a very personal part of yourself. What was that thought process? Did it come easily, naturally, yeah. flow out of you, think about it? So when I first decided to bring people into the therapy room for this book, I didn't intend it to be uh, my story of being in therapy. Mm -hmm. I was going to write about these four different people. There's a, you know, this kind of very abrasive, uh, high powered executive who is insulting to me. He's belittling. He tells me that um, I'm a, he came to me because I'm a nobody and he didn't want to run into any of his high-powered colleagues in the waiting room. So he knew that nobody, of course, would be going to a nobody like me. Well, that's logical. Um, right. Um, you know, he's very, very insulting to me. But but he ends up being being the person that I think we love most um, when we get to know him. He's very endearing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but in the beginning, he's very hard to like. Um, there's, you know, this woman in her 20s who keeps hooking up with the wrong guys, including eventually one from the waiting room and her... Um, she thinks that's kind of a step up for her because she's like, well, at least he's in therapy. Um, and she starts to later realize what her pattern is. And there's a, a woman who goes on her honeymoon and um, comes back from her honeymoon and finds out she has breast cancer. And then ultimately I, I um, see her until her death, um, which we were not expecting to happen. And there's um, a woman who's about to turn 70 and her adult children don't talk to her. They're estranged from her. She's made significant mistakes as a parent um, and really damaged her children. And um, and she's had some marriages and she's extremely isolated. And, and she says, if things don't change in the next year, by the time I turn 70, I don't want to live anymore. So those are the stories I was originally going to tell. Um, but then I thought, I really felt like... So I, pausing there for a moment, just in terms of confidentiality, in case anyone's tuning in in the middle of the podcast thinking that therapists just drop details about their clients all the time on the bus as if that's no big deal. I thought the way you described this in your book was very beautiful and it really stuck with me the way you said, you know, if you see yourself in this book, it's both completely accidental and intentional. And I'm, I'm hearing the fact that you picked four clients um, you know, you've described, I've heard you talk about this, who both um, are a little bit of a mishmash of some, you know, a few different characters going on, and they embody something about the human spirit that we can all relate to. And then maybe there are some details that are very personal. And there was a consent process that went into this, a discussion. Well, actually, no personal details are in there. So first of all, I have permission. Mm -hmm. I didn't write about anybody that I was currently seeing because mm -hmm. I didn't feel that I could do the work of therapy and also be writing about somebody at the same time. That must be a power imbalance, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I just didn't think we'd be doing therapy. <clears throat> it's, it's something else. We'd be writing a book. Consulting. Yeah. 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 So um, it, it felt like it crossed several lines and there was no way that I, I could do that. Um, and, um, you know, and I think that, that there, there were in fact, some people whose stories I may have wanted to tell, but I didn't even, I didn't even ask their permission or, you know, to include them. So I did not mm -hmm. include them to be clear. Um, yeah. because I felt that they might, 
um, they might not be okay with it. I, I really went to people that I knew would would really be, you know, would really want to participate in this process. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I did not, um, you know, any personal details have been thoroughly changed. So mm-hmm. it wasn't a negotiation with them about um, what we can include because I wanted to make sure that nobody could find them. And I think in this age of the internet, it's so easy to find people. So you have to be really diligent about about that trust and about protecting the people who mm-hmm. come to you with that trust. Mm-hmm. So as a truly compassionate therapist, here you are, you're kind of centering the client. It sounds like in terms of confidentiality and that thought press, you really were thinking about those four narratives first. So tell me how, how that fifth, the fifth beetle mm-hmm. got added in. I felt that it was almost fraudulent to be writing about them and their struggles and and for them to be so vulnerable and open and for me to kind of hide behind the professional veil of clinician. Yes, I'm, I'm the clinician in those contexts, but I'm also a human. And I, I feel like our greatest tool is our humanity. And I really felt like in order to open up this world in the most honest way, I wanted to show what a therapist's life is like too. And so I bring people into my my life in the office and also a little bit of my personal life, but also my, my experience of going through therapy, what it's like to be on the other side, to be the patient, especially when you are a therapist. So it's one thing when you're training. I remember we were, you know, we had our 500 hours of of therapy that went toward licensure. And um, it's really different because you haven't really gotten your feet wet in the same way. But once you're out there and you're doing the work, then to go back, Mm -hmm. it's a very different experience. Mm -hmm. And I do all of the things with my therapist that my clients do with me. Um, You know, I want him to like me. And I think I open up that conversation in the book. So Mm -hmm. many people have told me since reading the book that um, because in the book, I asked my therapist point blank if he likes me, which we think we're not allowed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people have brought up, you know, by way of you know, sort of indirectly handing their therapist the book and saying, hey, this, this scene happened in this book. <laughs> it's not about me. This section is highlighted. Yes. <laughs> Read that paragraph aloud and then I'll go next. You can almost play it out, right? Right, you play right. Play the whole scene if you want. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, and I, I think that all the feelings that we have as clients in therapy that we want to be liked that when I'm leaving there often is this other woman in the waiting room if she comes early and she looks so nice and put together and I think, oh gosh, you know, I wonder if he likes her sessions more than mine or does he dread my sessions because I keep coming in and complaining about the boyfriend. Um you know, I Google stalk him one night, going back to this what's out there and what's personal. And you know, I do discover something about him, nothing, nothing that feels um, creepy, but I, I learned that his, his father had died mm-hmm. in middle age um, mm-hmm. of a sudden heart attack. And his father had been very healthy, had been a marathon runner. And I had been waxing poetic in my therapy sessions about my nearly 80 year old father and mm-hmm. how we were having this time together to say goodbye. Cause my father was in very ill health mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that this had happened to him until I Google stalked him. And now I started editing myself in sessions because I was, I was ashamed to tell him that I had Googled him because you had to go pretty deep to find what I found. It wasn't the first thing you would find. He didn't know what you ended up finding was on the internet. Right. Did he? No, like, he it was didn't. that deep. 
Yes. Yeah. It was that deep. I, I, I had my, used my background as a journalist to, right. there <laughs> you know, you go. to spend that time. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually I do confess to him and all the air returns to the room. But when I, when I write about myself, I'm writing about a very real experience. And I think that that's sometimes uncomfortable for people to see that therapists are people in the world who deal with the daily problems of living. I, I tell a story in the book about a colleague of mine who um, had been trying to get pregnant for some time and had really struggled with it. And finally she was pregnant and she was standing in a Starbucks when she got a call from her doctor saying that the pregnancy wasn't viable. And she burst into tears. A client of hers happened to walk in, saw the sobbing therapist, made eye contact left, never came back to therapy. It's like a nightmare situation for a therapist, right? Like I'm a, I'm a real person for one moment and then everyone sees it and it's going to cancel my right. appointment. Right. Right. And of course we would never take that call in the room with the client, but, um, but for me, I feel like that would make me feel more safe. I would trust that person all the more because she knows what it's like to struggle, even if her pain isn't my pain, yeah. um, you know, she had she wasn't a robot. She had a normal human reaction. Mm -hmm. But I think that we we really struggle. I think as as a culture, mm -hmm. with the fact that therapists are real human beings, and that humanity is their greatest tool in helping us, and yet we don't want to see any of it. Yeah, yeah, and it you know I just had a kind of a person flash into my mind as you were talking about that, and you were sharing your experience as a therapist and feeling almost like you'd be a hypocrite if you didn't, you were going through therapy yourself and you'd bury the lead, right? That seems really an important reference point and data point for you to have had that experience. And yet, what does it take for you to feel like it's possible to share that big self-disclosure? It's a huge risk potentially for some folks in their career. I went to a mental health conference last fall and a woman stood up and I think she said, I'm in my 60s and hey, I'm a person who has depression sometimes. And I can say that now because I have a pension set up and this and that. But I couldn't have said that 20 years ago or 40 years ago. And it made me think of all the people in that room who couldn't self-disclose. It wasn't safe financially or socially to do it. And it also makes me think about me as a therapist because you know, my training teaches me that self-disclosure, you talk about this beautifully in the book, is a very important part of the learning process. And in fact, therapists are very intentional about what they pick and choose. And I'm, it's part of a, a relationship that you have. This is something a lot of people don't know about the therapy process. You're not just going to a robot and they're going to tell you this answer and hack your life and it's going to be a magic solution. You're, you're playing a lot of your own tics and social inadequacies and frustrations with that therapist in a real live relationship. And self-disclosure is an important part of that. And for me as a therapist who has a new podcast and is talking about some of these topics, I'm thinking very carefully about what I want to share with my audience versus what I want to reserve in that one-on-one -on -one space. Well, that's such an important point because I think it's very different to hear about your therapist on a podcast in your case, or to read about your therapist in my case, mm -hmm. and to have that conversation in real time with somebody. They're very different experiences. Even when I Googled my therapist, what I read about him was very different from talking about it with uh -huh. him. Um, and, and talking about it with him just normalized everything. Uh-huh. Um, it felt a lot less intrusive. Uh -huh. uh, it felt a lot more kind of 
normal and real. And so I think that what happens in those conversations is so much more important than what somebody might find out about you through something that's out there in the public. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what you're talking about, you know, you're talking about his point of view and the fact that you had an opportunity to hear his point of view as opposed to his mother, right? She was the mm-hmm. one who had written this beautiful piece about you know, grief and loss, and you got to hear his. And then also, I imagine as an author, there's a, there's a story you're telling the audience that is useful for them to hear about the therapy process. And then there's a part of it that's just for yourself, right? That you kind of know and maybe doesn't have words to. And do you want to say anything about that line between sharing, putting something in a book versus kind of maybe even the intangible that doesn't fit in a book that is something that you just kind of know for your own self about the process? I think that what I was trying to do was to show um, that I was experiencing everything in the process that I think my clients do. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that I really reserved much about the process. Obviously I didn't put in every moment of therapy yeah. for my clients or for me. Um, you can't do that. Yeah. So you, you try to capture the spirit of the experience. Yeah. When we talk about self-disclosure, I think a lot about secrets Mm -hmm. because secrets are a big theme in the book. We all keep secrets. Uh, I write in the book that, that Carl Jung called secret psychic poison. And I love that description because secrets are so corrosive and Mm -hmm. they're based in shame. Mm -hmm. So we all keep secrets from the world. Um, Often we keep secrets from the people that we are close to. And there's a difference, by the way, between secrecy and privacy. So privacy Mm -hmm. is really important that we need to have private spaces for ourselves. Even with the people that we're closest to, we need those private spaces. I think some people think when they're in relationship, they're supposed to know everything about each other. And that can be really unhealthy. So, um, so when I'm talking about secrets, I'm talking about something that's based in shame. That is something that the person would want to know that would bring you closer. Um, And then there are secrets that we keep from the therapist Mm -hmm. and there are secrets that we keep from ourselves Mm -hmm. and the secrets that we keep from ourselves um, are what the therapist is sort of trying to help us get to. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there, once we become aware of them, we still sometimes keep that secret from the therapist. And so you see that in, in my therapy where I'm keeping secrets from the therapist. I, I call him Wendell in the book. Um, I'm keeping secrets from him. At first, I'm not even aware of them. And then I become aware of them, but I'm so filled with shame around them that I don't tell him right away. Even I have secrets, the therapist who knows all the tricks and hacks and communication techniques, right? I should be able to, you should be able to see it. Is there an assumption that you should know? There is an assumption, right. And and I think that you're very much a patient when you're in the room, right? Mm -hmm. You're, you're, you're just being a person. You're not, you don't have your therapist hat on. I did in the beginning. In the beginning, I would sort of backseat drive. Uh, he'd say something, and I think, well, that wasn't how I would have approached it, you know, like, or why did he say that? Or, you know, um, but I think, you know, my my um, my clients keep secrets from me all the time too. And again, not because they're 
they're doing it on purpose necessarily, or they're, they're doing, they are doing it on purpose, but they're trying to protect themselves. Yeah. Um, you and know, it's a skill, right? Right. You can even point that out as a skill. I, you know, I go over this in my confidentiality procedures. There may be some things you're not ready to tell me yet. And you can always ask for a friend or tell me what would happen if, and we can talk about it. We can talk about a part of it. We can talk about it today and then skip it for the next six weeks if you want to. And, and that's actually an assertiveness skill. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you talk about the relationship in the room, very often folks are practicing on us these skills that they might use with their mother-in-law, might use with their boss at work, maybe with their neighbor. But, you know, first they're going to ask us if it's OK to reschedule short notice or could we waive the cancellation fee? And, and we're going to look at that through a therapist's eye and we're going to know they're practicing skillful behavior. And we have to even modulate our response knowing that, oh my gosh, this person's trying something for the very first time. I'm the first one to see it. That's right. That's right. Um, I think that people, the counterexample of that might be Charlotte in the book, who in her quest for intimacy would disclose everything Uh um, to a new partner. She wouldn't do it with me. It was interesting. She did the opposite with me. She held everything back from me, Uh probably because I was a real relationship. And the people that she would go after, she would never have a real relationship with. So she wanted this sort of almost like a forced intimacy. Mm-hmm. And she had to learn what that balance is like between mm-hmm. disclosing everything right away mm-hmm. or not showing yourself to the person at all. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really important. But I think that when the when the secrets come out, what people learn, and again, it, it's, it's doing it in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. But what people learn is that the truth of who they are is so much more likable than the persona that they present where they're hiding the secrets. Mm -hmm. And so, so many people feel when we go back to the shame that if they tell you the truth of who they are, that someone's going to abandon them, not like them, look at them differently, Mm -hmm. um, feel differently about them, reject them. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what happens is people tend to really identify with them they might not identify with the exact circumstance mm-hmm. but they start to feel closer to them mm-hmm. they say I can see you now yeah yeah I mean a lot of what you're saying really reminds me of some of the basic principles of mindfulness what I this is a frame I use for myself all the time is just the the basic principle of validation and what that that's a reality acceptance principle and it's seeing things as as they are. And if, if someone's doing something that sounds kind of wacko to you or crazy, it means you're not seeing it. You know, you need to pick up the rock, look under it. What color, what does it smell like? What does it sound like? And see it from a different angle. And that validation is a person's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors all make sense. And so when you talk about shame, shame's almost like that outer layer that keeps us blocked from that inner kind of knowing. And I think the the coming out process is kind of universal in this way. When people come out of the closet, they're not making something up. They're not inventing something that wasn't there. They're coming to terms with what is. They're kind of seeing it for themselves for the first time. And then if you're lucky, they'll share it with you. And everyone has their own coming out process. But um, they don't always know what they're looking at. And it helps to have words for it, right? Right, to be able to articulate the experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think they're not just coming out to the therapist, but often they're coming out to themselves. Yeah. That for the first time they're able to articulate something about themselves um, that they they never were able to put a 
cohesive narrative to. Yeah. Um, you know, they just felt very anxious or very depressed, but now they can talk about what's underneath that. Mm-hmm. Here's what I always the way I think of therapy, and I think your book's a good example of this, the way I explain it to first-timers coming to therapy or family members coming out and supporting the process. Going to therapy is very much like learning a new language. It's a form of bilingualism. It maybe even you feel it on a sensory level, just accessing different parts of your brain. This is that aha moment when someone says, I never thought of it that way. They're experiencing that phenomenon called psychological flexibility. And when you learn that language, it's like hearing a new word and you hear it everywhere. And some folks are there in the therapy process. They're working on the shame and they're breaking through that shame with you. And it's a one-on-one experience. Other folks, maybe they're in just the right context to do that. This it's where therapy concepts become contagious. So, you know, sometimes only one person in the family is going to therapy, but everyone's benefiting because they're reading the handout. Someone's leaving the book out, the audible books in the car, or they're just reaping the benefits of that person, knowing themselves better and being a little bit more cool and collected. And occasionally I'll hear the brave heroes say, oh my gosh, you know, I talked about it in a meeting at work. I told, you know, I put it on my calendar loud and proud so everyone can see it. And again, it's person environment. So it takes just the right interaction to make one feel safe to do that. Um, But I think that your book does that very artfully. And, you know, I asked you before if there's anything you want individuals to understand about starting the therapy process. Is there anything you want new therapists to know starting out the process? I, I went on a the Practice of the Practice podcast and talk with Joe Sanic about, you know, the imposter syndrome I felt during the first six months. And, um, you know, maybe no one wants to come see me. And it was more about they have to know I'm here and getting my website in the right spot and all of that. And then it was a different problem being too busy. Um, and, and I shared on there my whole kind of uh, speech I would have given myself at that time. But what would you say to a new therapist um starting out well that's that's such a great question because in the book i i am a new therapist starting out at the time the book takes place um and so my therapist was much more experienced than i was and it was really interesting for me to watch him work um because he just brought his whole personality into the room and what i mean by that is he was very boundary he didn't cross lines or self-disclose in, mm-hmm. in ways that felt inappropriate. And he mm-hmm. barely self-disclosed at all, much mm-hmm. to my chagrin. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> so it's fun to get those little, yeah, like details. it was like a little gift. Um, <laughs> um, but, um, but he was just very much himself. And because I come from a, a, a writing background story, I think is so important to me. And it was important to me to be able to bring story into the therapy room. So I work a lot in metaphor um, mm-hmm. and metaphors that work for the, for the client. So mm-hmm. something that, means something to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think also one thing that I was afraid to do that I do all the time in my Dear Therapist column, but that I was afraid to do in the therapy room was to say, I can understand your perspective, but I don't necessarily have to agree with it. Mm -hmm. And, And to know that that's really helpful for people. So I can understand your low opinion of your partner, but I don't have to agree with every piece of your narrative. Mm -hmm. And I want you to see your story from a different perspective. 
I want you to imagine that the other quote unquote characters in your story, the mm-hmm. other people you're talking about in your story, if they were telling the exact same story, how would they tell that story? Mm-hmm. And it helps to broaden their perspective. It helps to give them more flexibility mm-hmm. and it helps them to see their own role in the story. And sometimes I think people are worried about seeing their own role because they feel like it's, they're being blamed. Mm-hmm. Um, they feel like, you know, someone's criticizing them or judging them for mm-hmm. doing something that maybe isn't helpful. But I think seeing your own role is very liberating because then you have choices. Mm-hmm. Then you're not trapped by your external circumstances, but you can choose how you respond to them and maybe even change them. Yeah. And are you also talking about that very same validation principle of, oh, wow, this person's seeing me and they didn't run out of the room and they even have some thoughts and piece of advice for it. And are you also talking about, are you talking about kind of the confidence as a therapist to know that it's okay to give that direction and that you have a point of view and you can see it? Yeah, just to, to really bring myself into the room and be me in the room mm-hmm. and not some idea of, I think in our training, for good reason, we're taught certain ways of being in the room and certain ways of responding. And it's almost like I think of it as if you were, um, you know, a, a pianist and you had to learn your scales really well and you had to learn all of the classical pieces really well mm-hmm. and, and do them exactly as written, but then you can improvise. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to know those things really well. We need the, the basics. Mm-hmm. We need to master those. But once you have improvising and bringing yourself into the room that way is really going to be helpful to the people who come to see you. They're going to come to see you specifically because you're you, mm-hmm. um, not because they're going to, in a generalized way, therapy. Because yeah. every experience of going to therapy is very different yeah. depending on the therapist you go to. And you'll get something out of it. Yeah. Um, you'll get something different out of it from each therapist and their approach. But you've got to be yourself as a therapist. You have to own that skill set. I think I've seen that. I think that's a really great lesson to pass on to new folks coming to the profession or whether you're trying, you know, a new training or a new echelon within your field. And, you know, another person just popped into my mind, someone who I used to work at um, with uh, at La Clinico and we worked with new immigrant families and a lot of, um, you know, older senor and senoras. And, and I'm thinking of someone who was my intern and she was often perceived as very young she's petite and just people often say to her are you young enough to work here that kind of thing and um she's really smart and got great education and paid attention while she was there and has really great training and you know graduated one year ago those are the facts those are the facts of the situation and she had a big hang up about people you know perceiving her as too young and and she was pleasantly surprised um, how much respect and esteem she oh doctora she was misperceived as a doctor you know she had to explain she has a master's degree and what that means and they loved it you know they couldn't wait to get her advice they didn't care that she was 24 years old or whatever and she had a point of view right and she learned that she did have to be honest and not pretend she was 45 because she wasn't that would be enough Right. And I think that also when you are starting out like that, that um, you're learning Mm -hmm. and it's okay to be learning. Um, You can make, I mean, even now, I mean, I make mistakes all the time, but you can repair them. 
you can, and that's such a good experience for the relationship between you and your client Mm -hmm. that when you can say, you know, I was thinking about this thing that happened last week Mm -hmm. and here's what I was thinking about during the week. And, and Mm -hmm. I, now that I think about it, I wish that I hadn't said it that way, or I wish that Mm -hmm. I had said this instead. Um, people really respect that. Yeah. Um, and I think too, you know, there's my very first therapy session is in the book where I I make what I think is a colossal mistake. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to do an intake and Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be really straightforward because I have an intake form Mm -hmm. and I'm working at a, at a clinic Mm -hmm. and they, all we needed to do in this first session was get this information on this form and the session doesn't go that way. Um, I, I, you know, the first thing that happens is this woman walks in and she says the reason she's there is that she can't stop crying. And then as if on cue, she starts crying. Yeah. And it's interesting because in our training, we haven't sat with people um, who are sitting as far away as you and I are sitting right now, which is just a few feet. Mm-hmm. And you don't know anything about this person. And she's crying hysterically in front of me. Yeah. And I don't know if I should look at her so she knows I'm with her and I'm, I'm here with her. You don't know her. her yet. I don't know anything about her. You just met her. You don't know what she needs. I don't know if I should look away because maybe I'm making her feel self-conscious. Yeah. I don't know if I should let her keep crying or if I should say something. Meanwhile, you're having your own feelings about the situation. It sounds awkward as heck. You know? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I need a therapist in that moment. I want my supervisor <laughs> in the room. My social skills coach to tell me, okay, you lean over and you Well, what do you do? You and, and, yeah. You yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, it's, you know, and then the session, just, I'm not getting the information that I need at a certain point. I look at the clock. It's been 10 minutes. I think surely it's been more than 10 minutes. It feels like a really long time. Um, and then, um, and then, you know, she's going on. I realize I just have to chuck the whole intake form, even though I think I might get fired on my first day because I didn't get the information I was supposed Great to get. Story. I've got none of it. And, um, I'm just sort of following where she's going and she has a lot to say, and, and then, um, I look at the clock again because I know I have my second new patient waiting in the waiting room, um, and only 10 minutes have passed. And it dawns on me that the clock is broken. There's no battery in the clock and I have no idea how much time has passed. It is the worst possible scenario for your very first session. <laughs> and it, ultimately she says to me, she looks up and she says, is our time up? That went so fast. And I follow where she's looking and there was a clock on the wall behind me that I didn't know. I'd never been in that room before. Um, And I was really relieved and and I hope that she had no idea, that I had no idea. But when I go to my supervisor after and I tell her about what I think is a disastrous first session, she tells me, first of all, always be honest. If the the battery was not in the clock, just tell her, hey, I want to be able to keep track of our session so I'm not distracted. Let me go get my cell phone and I'll know what time it is. Um, and also, you know, you have to follow, it takes people a while to tell their story and we don't do those kinds of intakes in private practice. Mm-hmm. Um, we're doing our own intake in our head in a different way, mm-hmm. but, um, but you really have to follow where the person is going. And I had done that and she did come back and I worked for her for the entire year that I was at that clinic. And, um, you know, ultimately it seemed that I did do the right thing. Yeah. Um, and so those are those learning experiences. And I think that we think we have to know it all in that very first session. And we very much don't, we're learning, um, and we have supervisors and we need to use them very well. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of that old Gottman relationship principle that you should have for any healthy relationship. Five good, you know, please. And thank yous rubs on the back. I'll do the dishes, honey to any, could you take the garbage out please? 
And, you know, if you're a new therapy intern or you're trying a new style of therapy, just you showing up, it's kind of like doing CPR on someone who's injured. You're not going to do any harm if you show up with that good and that good Samaritan, good intention. And just that gaze, that attention span, that's going to really fill up your five to one ratio pretty quickly. And when you do make the mistake, you're, you're showing learning in the process and, oh, what a relief. Oh gosh, my therapist has sick days too. I'm allowed to be a human being and I'm allowed to, um, have a range from 60% optimization to 100%. And isn't that okay? So my last question for you, Lori, is, and I'll, I'll go first if you want, I'll share an example. Since we started out with what should the individual think about as they start the therapy process and what should the new therapist think about as they're starting the therapy process? I'm curious to hear from you what you're learning right now as a therapist. Um, what I'm learning as I've, you know, being a therapist is my dream job because you can always change it up and you can do different things. And I've worked in crisis settings and um, internationally and all that. And right now I'm enjoying my personal task of breaking beyond the traditional therapy hour. So that's the whole point of this podcast. And I do burnout prevention hackathons in the workplace. And so I'm really trying to break my therapy bubble of only a lot of my friends are therapists. I hang out with therapists and I'm trying to bring some of those therapy concepts into spaces where people are usually talking about engineering or music or different things and mix it up and do some of that bilingualism. Um, so I'm trying to learn how to adapt. So that's why you keep hearing me talk about adapting. What is your mission statement right now? You know, I, in, the, in the book, I had almost a hard time figuring out what your first love was, whether it was journalism or therapy. And I suspect maybe there's even something beyond those two examples of whatever this thing is, but what would you say is your current learning that you're going through right now if you had to name this chapter? Um, not that you're writing, because that takes a little bit of uh, debriefing and thoughtfulness, but that you're kind of right in the middle of right now. Yeah, I, I don't think of my career, the different pieces of my career as separate. I think they're all the same exact thing, which is I've always been interested in psychology and emotional health and the human condition, and they're just different ways of bringing them um, out into the world. So I do it in my private practice. I do it in my writing. I do it in my weekly column. Um, and I think that my mission right now, which is why I wrote the book, which is I really want, I feel like you can only work with people in the therapy room one-on-one -on -one, or if you're seeing mm -hmm. a couple or family, mm -hmm. there's a few people. Um, and I love that and I will not stop doing that. But I really feel like I want to make emotional health more accessible. Mm -hmm. I want to take the stigma away. I want to show people how we grow and change, what transformation looks like in a real way, not in some rah-rah, Nike, just do it way. Yeah, buy um, this product way. Right, right. Yeah. But in a in a way of let's let's start talking about real life more, not on Facebook. Mm -hmm. well, of course, we like using Facebook for it's, its, tool. its purpose um, or Instagram. But, but I think that people are losing touch with what really contributes to emotional health, which is, I say at the very, I think the first sentence of the book is that in the introduction is that we grow in connection with others. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to make those connections. I'm trying to bridge those gaps mm -hmm. because so much of the time we aren't sit, doing what we do in the therapy room, which is sitting face to face with somebody else without something pinging or dinging or buzzing or a screen on the wall mm -hmm. and just 
sharing that space with someone. And there's the realities of our lives, which are very busy. But at the same time, I think we're really, there's an underlying isolation. And I want people to start talking about real life, connecting with each other, valuing their emotional health, um, and really making it just a normal part of our lives. I love that idea. I love the idea, you know, it just popped into my mind, people sitting around reading your book and say a book club or having these conversations. I love um, the idea of people kind of emailing the link to your book and having conversations because now that you've um, kind of broken the seal on that, we have a reference point now. So I, I really, truly want to thank you for your service and the fact that you know, we know not every therapist is in the position even of telling that story and you have a special skill set as a journalist. So I find it really inspiring and I like uh, to think about how each of us might be our own journalist in that way and what's the story that we want to craft. So I always give some um, folks a little bit of homework to think about that might be something um, I would leave them with. Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with before we close for today? I think that what you and I are doing is something that everyone can do, that everybody has a story to tell, everybody has a way of bringing their passions out into the world when it comes to this, you know, how we view emotional health, how we view mental health. Um, and I think everybody has a unique way of doing it. So I, I think that we need to stop being so constrained. Uh-huh. And, um, and that's part of that conversation as well. And that's why I really appreciate um, having been on your podcast today. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like when people say, that's my therapy, you should listen to them. That is their therapy. Whether they're talking about Pilates or yoga class or farmer's market or your book, um, or let's include, now let's include therapy in that's my therapy, right? It's just one of the many tools. You don't have to use all the tools at the same time, but it sure does speak to the other tools that you have at your disposal. So I think that's enough metaphors for one day. Um, Lori, if folks want to find you, is it lauriegottlieb.com or is there a better place that they can find you or um, see you speak or anything else? Any other? Um, yeah, my, my website is lauriegottlieb.com. They can see where I will be speaking and um, they can get more information about my writing or my practice. Um, I also am at lauriegottlieb1 on Twitter. Awesome. Great. And you'll find the show notes on therapyforreallife.com. So if you're curious about um, any of the topics we brought up today, check out there and you'll find some links and all of that. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.